The following announcement has been paid for by Journey into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey into Comics Network and no JIW? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. JIW has taken over. Butt stuff, podcastrophe, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey into Wrestling Network. Anything less is just too civilized. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of the week again. Welcome back to another episode of The Poor Rapport. I want to thank you for listening week in and week out as I bring you the news that really matter and the news that's going on around us. And it's been a pretty major week, as most of you know. Over the weekend, we had the 90th Oscars, which I'll go into detail here, and then you'll be able to Check out a more in-depth on the Foodies episode, which will be coming next Wednesday. But you can check it out early on Patreon for only a dollar, so that's exciting. And I actually realized, kind of the first time I'm going to get into today, is that in the show we've talked about fake news. And if you listen to my bumper and you listen to all that, you know that fake news has been going on. And I really thought it started with, with uh, Donald Trump and with the presidential campaign and his kind of the war on the mainstream media. And I actually realized that I had my own bit of fake news or false information that went back seven years ago. So, you know, if you're on Facebook, you know that every year, sometimes they do this thing like Facebook Memories, which is a, a post or some kind of event that you shared a year from the date or two years or however long it was. And I saw over Facebook anniversary of my 21st birthday tweet or a uh, Facebook message and it actually was my first time I actually used a fake news type post so it says uh, just got back from a fun night out with some close friends only to read more fun news in the scout about apparently my lack of leadership and how I'm failing students and my government if any of you know me you know that's false information I don't really care the scout is useless to me anyway happy 21st birthday to me so for those who don't know um the Scout is the student newspaper where I went to college, which was Bradley University, which is in Peoria, Illinois. And a couple weeks before this post, I was elected the student body treasurer filling in an opening from the original student body treasurer who resigned due to some other things going on. So I was running two weeks, kind of deal with a volatile government, and then the day of my birthday the student newspaper put an article out basically condemning the student government. And it was kind of an insight regarding one of the student body members, uh, the vice president who just had a bone to pick with us because we weren't doing things her way. And 
she had in with the student newspaper, so it was kind of a condemning thing to me. And I was like, I've been here two weeks. This is not my problem. But I got dragged to the mud just like everyone else. I'm going to actually read that article because due to the wonderful nature of technology, we have the archives of all these old scout articles. So I'm going to actually read you that article now. And it's actually kind of interesting to look back on it, how it kind of parallels to what's going on now, only in kind of an opposite manner. Uh, article says, Student Leadership Failing Students and Their Government. Uh, student Senate this week approved a newer Internal Affairs Committee chairman. For the average student, this means very little. The position oversees, obviously, the internal workings of Senate. Beyond that, the chairman position isn't of much concern to the student body at large. What should concern the student body, though, is that the majority of the student body officers with uh, the VP, the lone dissenter, brought the same unqualified candidate in front of the Senate General Assembly not one, but two times. Two times over two weeks, Senate was forced to vote down a candidate the majority of members never supported in the first place. Appointments to the Senate tend to take no more than 30 minutes to approve. Occasionally, it will take longer. But to spend two whole meetings appointing a candidate is nothing less than an outrage. The student body officers are not in charge of Senate. They should be, however, leading it. They should be setting agendas and encouraging senators and their committees to do good work. We're not naming the internal affairs candidate here because this isn't so much about him. This is about three student body officers blatantly ignoring the will of the General Assembly. And that once again proves the problem we've had with the student senatorship all along. And that once again is further evidence as why the Senate has struggled so much to accomplish anything this year. There's a serious lack of leadership, and though the leadership isn't in charge of the body... If, uh, if it isn't, you know, leading the body, it makes for an awfully incapable student government. Week in, week out, we ask, we plead for things to get done. We've done everything but beg the student leadership to step up and do some work. But we've come to terms with the fact that it's not going to happen. There are only a few more weeks left under this administration, and spending two weeks forcing a vote of an unqualified candidate for an internal position has made it crystal clear nothing's going to happen. So here we are again, urging anybody reading this to run for a student body officer position. There are no qualifications to running. Any student is eligible. Elections are in April and petitions are due soon. Now is the time. There are a select few other positions on campus that allow students as much authority with the university administration. Then is on one of the few organizations on campus that allow students to be change agents to further the student body. Student body presidents in years past have accomplished so much for Bradley. Some of them, such as last year's map grant battle, is a matter of circumstance. Others, including to some degree Lydia's Lounge, have been because of relentless work. So while we've been disappointed this year, we're excited for the possibility next year brings. So the story behind that was involving, right as I was brought on, they were looking to appoint a Internal Affairs Committee chairman, to oversee the committee that was already established and there was there was between basically a new person who happened to be on the committee versus an outside uh, a point like an outside person who has similar experience just not within the student senate as a whole so it was basically someone new versus someone already on the committee and we were pushing for someone new uh, me and the other two student body officers that were for this person because we wanted fresh blood in there and she, the vice president, was the more vocal candidate wanting to approve this other person and it was basically a three to one vote and it's always a majority decision so she was the most vocal so we couldn't settle it amongst the four of us. We had to bring it to the Senate and she would put up a fuss so we had to bring it up again. So that's kind of the story of that. And she was like best friends with the editor-in-chief of the student newspaper. So 
obviously this got kind of smashed. And this is kind of funny because this is two weeks after they put an article out about me being the uh, new to the student body officers, being part of the administration, and how I was asking the right questions, and how I'm going to be a joy to the Senate and all that. And then two weeks later, I get this kind of this slam defamation piece. So it kind of makes you think that even something as small as a student newspaper and a student body official can get a taste of what's going on a national and international level. So yeah, that was kind of a fun flashback for me. And I was like, oh, false information, fake news. That's kind of interesting. So kind of wanted to share that little bit as I kind of jump into today. One thing that's also kind of going on that's kind of probably upset the guys over on Bruce with Dudes and people and great Americans out there who enjoy the occasional can of beer. And that is involving uh, President Trump's new uh, steel and aluminum tariffs. So basically last week, President Trump said he would impose a 25% tariff or tax on steel imports and 10% on aluminum sparking a big sell-off in stocks. The stock market drop reflected a bigger concern, a possible trade war if other countries hit by the tariffs imposed tariffs in retaliation, sparking a back-and-forth of rising tariffs that hurt the growth of economies. So here's kind of what it means. So, for years, China has been accused of selling steel and aluminum in the U.S. at prices that are below the cost of production, partly because China has so much capacity. Trump says the practice has cost the U.S. steel industry hundreds of thousands of jobs, Trump won the election by promising blue-collar voters in Midwestern steel-producing states that he would get tough on imports. Now he's making good on that vow. So, can any country slap on tariffs so easily? Normally, the administration presents case to the U.S. International Trade Commission. However, uh, Trump, however, invoked a rarely used provision of the Trade Expansion Act to argue that the steel and aluminum imports pose a national security threat. For example, only one U.S. company now makes the type of aluminum needed for military aircrafts. The revision allows the president to impose unlimited tariffs unilaterally. Critics say the idea that the imports present a national security threat is highly questionable. So why did the stocks plunge? Uh, foreign steel and aluminum makers are little likely to pass along the higher price of the materials to U.S. manufacturers that use the materials, such as makers of cars, planes, boats, soup, and beer. That's further stoking fears of higher inflation that are already making markets jittery. Higher inflation could make the Federal Reserve more likely to raise interest rates. Higher rates make bonds more appealing compared to stocks and discourage borrowing and economic activity, hurting corporate earnings. Alternatively, if companies decide to absorb the higher steel and aluminum costs, that would also pinch profits. Other fear a trade war. A trade war happens when other countries affected by tariffs impose tariffs of their own in retaliation, potentially selling off, setting off a battle of escalating tariffs and Hobbing, uh, hobbling sorry, economic growth. Already the European Union, Canada, and China have threatened tariffs in response. That, wouldn't hurt the make, that would hurt the makers of a wide variety of U.S. exports, including beef, corn, pork, cars, and motorcycles. Trump, in turn, said he would then hit European cars with tariffs. What does the Trump administration say about the fears? Administration officials say the effect of the higher steel and aluminum costs on American products will be trivial because the materials make up only a small fraction of the cost of production such as cars and beer. For example, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro says a 10% tariff on aluminum would just would mean just a cent and a half increase in the price of a six-pack of beer. But just extrapolate that for someone who gets a 30-rack or gets other large quantities of beer and how much it's just going to stack up. And you got to think, 
that's the cost that's probably going to go from the beer distributor to the store. Then the store is going to add their own price jack on it. It's just going to get worse and worse from there. So Trump appears to be using uh, the tariffs as leverage with Canada and Mexico in the NAFTA talks. In a tweet Monday morning, Trump said, Tariffs on steel and aluminum will only come off if new and fair NAFTA agreement is signed. His tweet says that the administration may be open to modifying the sweeping tariffs to exempt certain countries, a move that would limit the economic damage. So that's interesting. And kind of getting back to the whole thing regarding beer and how it's going to affect people who enjoy beer, and I really want to end up hearing what the Brews with Dudes takes on it, so after they check out this episode, maybe we'll get a response in the next few days or maybe next week. So... Miller Coors, uh, one of the U.S. largest beer producers, a place I actually visited when I was traveling for work in the Golden area, which is where they produce a lot of the beer, including Blue Moon, which is probably my go-to beer on any given night. So uh, they released a three-part statement on Twitter shortly after Trump's announcement. The tariff will likely force Miller Coors and other beer companies to lay off workers. It said hinting at the cost would be passed on consumers. Uh, In their tweets, Miller Coors statements, We are disappointed... With President Trump's announcement of a 10% tariff on aluminum, while we while we won't know the details for a week, the Department of Defense recently reported that aluminum does not cause any national security issues. Like most brewers, we are selling an increasing amount of our beers in aluminum cans, and this action will cause aluminum prices to rise. It is likely to lead to job losses across the beer industry. We buy as much domestic canned sheet aluminum as is available. However, there simply isn't enough to supply to satisfy the demands of American beverage makers like us. American workers and American consumers will suffer as a result of this misguided tariff. Kwaja Maum, chair of business and economic department at Sacred Heart University, said the beverage industry isn't exaggerating the likely negative effects of the new tariffs. The tariffs will benefit steel and aluminum producers, the people who actually make it, but the people who use steel and aluminum to make other products will get hurt. He also predicted the rise increases are going to hurt consumers, noting that if the beer company has to raise price to match demand, consumer demand will be reduced and the product gets more expensive. Uh, he also said it's possible that beer companies will lose hundreds of millions of dollars and shed jobs. Yes, yeah, surely they will lose money. Any policy helps one group and hurts and harms the other group. In this case, the harm will outweigh the benefit as a total. Several beverage companies, including Miller Coors' parent company, Molson Coors signed a letter to Trump early last month urging him not to place a tariff on aluminum imports, particularly the types known as can sheet, primarily aluminum and scrap. A tariff or quota will immediately disadvantage these domestic businesses since foreign competitors would have the advantage of not paying an artificially inflated raw cost. The letter read, We estimate a tariff of 10% on this aluminum would cost beer and beverage producers 250 56.3 million, a 20% tariff would cost 512.5 million, and a 30% tariff would run 768.8 million. The letter was co signed by more than a dozen companies and industry groups, including the Can Manufacturers Institute, Heineken, and Coca Cola. So, yeah, definitely people are not going to be happy if that, if that cost is going to be passed along to the consumer. And I could see a lot of people. Being upset, and I know people are like, "Oh, what if they just go to glass bottles?" I mean, that's not a long-term solution. It's probably going to be more damaging in the long term. So we're gonna have to see how this tariff thing shakes out. Personally, I would be kind of upset if the cost of my beer went up. I don't drink every day, but it'll get annoying, and I'm sure it's gonna raise the cost of a bunch of other stuff that we use regularly. So yeah, we'll have to keep up with that as it goes. And if uh, any of the Brews with Dues guys are listening to this, then definitely comment uh for those of you 
who don't know, Bruce Dude's another podcast on the network, which you can check out by going into journeyintocomics.com. So, yeah, check that out. Great group of guys, great show. Lots of good conversations on beer and a lot of variety. So, definitely check that out. I guess really with that, I'm going to move on to kind of one of my my last big topic here, and there's a lot of news going on with this, and that involves the 90th Animal, the 90th Annual Academy Awards. And there's a lot of news to go along with that. I know it's covered a lot on the Foodies episode we're going to get to, but I'm just going to go through a lot of the big things I want to talk about. So I have a few things written down in my notes here. Um, So Jordan Peele was among the few to make history with the Oscars win. Jordan Peele had stopped writing the script for his horror satire film Get Out about 20 times before he finally finished it. On Sunday night, it won him an Oscar. Peel made history as the first African-American writer to ever win in the category. He also earned a nomination for Best Director and Best Picture, making him the third person to have their directorial debut appear in all three categories. The two who previously accomplished this were Warren Beatty with 1978's Heaven Can Wait and James L. Brooks for 1983's Terms of Endearment. A, num- a number of other nominees, writer-director Greta Gerwig and cinematographer Rachel Morrison among them, made a splash with their own historic Oscar nods, but failed to do so at the actual ceremony. James Ivory, however, wrote the adapted screenplay for Call Me By Your Name, and at 89 became the oldest person to ever win an Oscar. Cinematographer Roger Deakins made a record of his own when he finally won his first Oscar for his work on Blade Runner 2049 after losing 13 times throughout his career. He's popular for working with a lot of the Coen Brothers films, as well as Shawshank Redemption. So, he's definitely had a lot of work that's been deserving of this, and it's kind of nice that he's finally, at his age, got the award. Uh, foreign language film A Fantastic Woman earned Chile its first ever win, and Kobe Bryant, who wrote the animated short Dear Basketball, became the first NBA player to take home an Academy Award. Uh, Robert Lopez, who co-wrote his best original song, Remember Me, from Coco with his wife, Kristen Anderson Lopez, earned the distinction of becoming the only person in the world to ever achieve a double EGOT. Uh, Twelve people total, including Mel Brooks and Rita Marino, have earned at least one Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. While it's worth knowing that both of Lopez's Emmys are daytime awards, Therefore, his work on the animated children's series Wonder Pets. He has three Grammys, three Tonys, and another Oscar, which he and Anderson Lopez won in 2014 for the Frozen earworm Let It Go. Never seen Frozen, but I really loved Coco, so I'm happy to see them getting some recognition. Uh, A few presenters also made history, although in a different manner than returning duo Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, who notoriously flubbed last year's Best Picture announcement. Uh, Cherokee actor and Vietnam War veteran Wes Studi became one of the first Native Americans to officially present at the Oscars, introducing a montage of clips from war films. Native American actress and activist Sachin Littlefeather memorably took the stage to refuse the Best Actor Award on behalf of Marlon Brando in 1973. Uh, A Fantastic Woman star Daniela Vega became the first openly transgender presenter when she introduced... uh, Sufjan Stevens' performance of Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name. Although Vega was not nominated in the Best Actress category, director Sebastian Lelio thanked her while accepting the award for Best Foreign Language Film. He said, I want to thank the cast of the film, especially the brilliant actor Francisco Reyes, 
Mirande and the inspiration for this movie, Daniela Vega. You said the film was made by a lot of friends and artists. I shared this with all of you tonight. For the fourth time in five years, a Mexican director won the category of uh, director. Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, took home the prize this year. Alejandro Inaratu won in 2014 for Birdman and in 2015 for The Revenant. And in 2013, Alfonso Cuaron won for Gravity. So that's very impressive that four of the last five Best Picture win or sorry, director winners have all been of Mexican heritage. And Shape of Water is a pretty phenomenal build. I was going into the awards thinking three billboards was going to win, but I'm happy to see Guillermo del Toro Shape of Water finally get some love from director and Beck's picture. One thing that was kind of interesting about the award show as well was that there was the introduction of a jet ski, which I know you're thinking, jet ski, Oscars, what in the world is that about? So basically what happened is that early in the show, Kimmel announced that the winner who made the shortest acceptance speech would win a free jet ski presented a la The Price is Right. It was very thematical of that. I think they played the music and had the announcer say, you'll win a jet ski and all that fanfare. So in the end, Mark Bridges, who won Best Costume Design for Phantom Thread, was the winner with a 36-second speech. He wore a life jacket as he rode the jet ski on stage with, of course, Helen Mirren at the end of the award show after Shape of Water was announced as Best Picture. Another couple things that were interesting involved an inclusion writer. So when Frances McDormand won for won Best Actress for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, she came up and gave her speech and says, I've got some things to say. Uh, McDormand declared as she picked up her trophy for Best Actress for her raw, riveting performance in Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. The crowd warned as McDormand urged every female nominee to stand up. She said, look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we have, all have stories to tell and projects we need finance. Don't talk to us about it at the parties. Invite us into your office in a couple of days, or you can come to ours, whichever suits you best, and we'll tell you about them. She ended her speech with two words, inclusion writers, which sent quite a few viewers race into Google. So an inclusion writer is something actors put in their contracts to ensure gender and racial equality in hiring on movie sets. We should support this for a billion reasons, but if you can't find a reason, here's one. It'll make the movies better. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o and Kumal Nanjiani had a call to dreamers. So they came out to, I think, introduce the video, which I'm going to show the audio for in a little bit, saying, we are two actors you keep hearing about, but whose names you have trouble pronouncing, Nyong'o explained to the crowd as the duo presented the Production Design Award. We are also immigrants. I'm from Kenya, uh, Nyong'o said. And Kumal Nanjiani said, and I'm from Pakistan and Iowa, two places that nobody in Hollywood can find on a map. We grew up dreaming of one day working in the movies. Dreams are the foundation of Hollywood, and dreams are the foundation of America, Nyong'o said. As Nanjani added, to all dreamers out there, we stand with you. The reference to DACA wasn't the only political reference of the night. Several people, including Gerwig, emphasized the importance of the truth. Coco co-director Lee Unkrich talked about how representation matters. After Icarus, the documentary about the Russian doping scandal won Best Documentary Feature, Kimmel cracked, we now at least know Putin didn't rig this competition, right? I guess before I really get into everything else, I'm going to play the montage video regarding inclusion and just the fantastic work of women and minorities in Academy Award-nominated films. So that'll play right now. This entire fall, the Me Too, the Time's Up movements, 
Everyone is getting a voice to express something that has been happening forever, not only in Hollywood, but in every walk of life. Do they know I'm black? Should they? Some of our best work has come from turmoil. We have been in denial about the things at work. This moment is exposing the hypocrisy. These are times that'll be long remembered. What will we be remembered for? What did we do? My name's Ladybird. It's weird you shake hands. It's all the movies I loved were directed by men. That sort of seemed like a prerequisite. Some of my favorite movies are movies by straight white dudes about straight white dudes. Now straight white dudes can watch movies starring me and you relate to that. It's not that hard. I've done it my whole life. So the sun is just shining down on me right now. It's just a party. The industry has to become sincerely curious about the human essence that has become invisible behind stereotypes. It's this possibility of the status quo not having to be the status quo any longer. Can we considering going? I'm talking to Mr. Bradley now. When Thelma Louise came out, the huge prediction in the press was this changes everything. We're going to see so many more movies starring female characters. That didn't happen. But this is now that moment. I've been a trans director in my life for many, many years now. With the nomination and headline, I was like, oh, I guess this is new for some people. Some people are really in their hearts, they're threatened or they're scared. And they're nothing to be scared of. For It's just equality. Emily, my wife, had this idea. She wanted to have a website called Muslims Having Fun, which is just like Muslims eating ice cream and riding roller coasters and laughing and having fun. Because she gets to see that and most of America doesn't. You can deconstruct the very way that people see themselves and the way that they are seen. We are the interpreters of dreams and we have a chance to lionize beauty and truth and honor and justice. Only through originality, we can really get to the heart of real human stories. There's so many movies from different points of view that are making a ton of money. Don't do it because it's better for society and representation, even though it is. Do it because you'll get rich. Look at that promotion, right? I remember going to see Wonder Woman, sitting in the theater and hearing women crying, this big action extravaganza, and something clicked. I'll say it, this is what white men feel all the time. And all these women are having this experience for the first time. Imagine it's gonna be the same thing when people go and see Black Panther. Get ready for some more get outs, for some more Black Panthers. Get ready for some more wrinkle in times. We're here and we're not going anywhere. My son, it is your time. It's so exciting to imagine an eight-year-old kid seeing themselves on screen in a way they've never seen before. Traditional walls have collapsed. You have a phone that has a camera on it that you can actually make a movie on right now if you wanted to. Go make your movie. We need your movie. I need your movie. So go make it. That's a very powerful video. There's also a montage regarding the 90th Oscars, and that was also very impressive to watch. And had a lot of clips intermingled, and it was just the montage were, I think, a fun part for me for the whole night watching the the best picture or watching the award show and ending up with best picture. Another one to get into, uh, kind of on the more after side, is that the Oscars hit new viewership low with 26.5 million viewers. Um, well, this is good enough to handily top all of Sunday's broadcast competition and most of the award shows of the past year. 
It is still the least watched Oscars to date. The drop-off was not entirely unexpected as the audience for most award shows has been declined in recent years. As it stands, the 2018 Oscars are down approximately 19% compared to 2017. The 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. portion of ABC's telecast averaged an 18.9 household rating and 32 share in Nielsen's metered market overnight ratings, which covers about of 70% of U.S. TV households. That's down about 16% from the 22.5 to 37 rating generated by the 2017 Oscars. However, the preliminary ratings are not adjusted for time zone difference. ABC's 8 p.m. to 11.48 p.m. Eastern Time Oscar cast aired live coast-to-coast, which means the live West Coast viewership is not accurately reflected in the overnight numbers that measure only primetime hours in all markets. Nor do they include viewership from the post-11 p.m. final 48 minutes, when the most prominent awards were handed out to winners that included Gary Oldman as Best Actor for Darkest Hour and Francis McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. In the... Fast Nationals, which are not time zone adjusted, the Oscars telecast averaged a 6.4 rating in adults 18 to 49 and 24.4 million viewers compared to the 8.7 rating and 29.1 million viewers for the 2017 telecast drew in the preliminary numbers. 2017's telecast eventually rose to a 9.1 and 32.9 million viewers. ABC will likely see a lift in numbers once the final data becomes available later today. But as it currently stands, the 2018 Oscar telecast is an all-time low in the ratings. Nonetheless, the overnights gave a glimpse of the baseline turnout for the ceremony that crowned the fantasy drama The Shape of Water as Best Picture. Despite the drop, ABC was a dominant network of the night, easily topping its big four competitors combined. As it currently stands, ABC averaged a 5.8 rating and 22.4 million viewers on Sunday night. NBC averaged a .6, while CBS and Fox tied with a .5 averaging 4.5 million viewers, while NBC drew drew 2.7 million and Fox drew 1.7 million. So that's the numbers, but I feel like a lot of people who are really into movies don't really watch a lot of TV or maybe can't stay up that late to watch the actual presentation. So not really much there. I mean, this is the, I think really starting in the past three years is when I've actually started to really focus in on the the Academy Awards and all the major award shows like the Golden Globes and the BAFTA and SAG and all that, but also kind of interesting kind of moving away from the numbers into something that's more interesting that I noticed while watching all nine Best Picture nominees over two weekends doing the AMC Best Picture Showcase. And that's that there's a lot of overlap with actors and actors appearing in more than one film that was nominated and how you could, in theory, get from one movie to all the other nine. Kind of the six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon. And I actually found an article that actually gave me all the information I needed, but not beyond what I already knew. So, so there are nine nominees for Best Picture, and we can connect each Best Picture nominee, nominee with the actors they have in common. So Timothy Chalamet appears in Lady Bird, and Shirsi Ronan's love in, as, love, as her love interest Kyle... He also stars in Call Me By Your Name as Elio. In Call Me By Your Name, Michael Stuhlbarg plays Elio's father. Stuhlbarg is also in two other Best Picture nominees. He plays Dr. Robert Hofstetler in Shape of Water, and he is in he is New York Times editor Ro- Abe Rosenthal in The Post. Though those two alone, we have four of the films covered. Now let's take another look at Lady Bird. Lady Bird's father, Larry, is played by Tracy Letts, who also plays Fritz Beebe in The Post. 
Lady Bird's other love interest, Danny, is played by Lucas Hedges. Hedges also stars in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, as Mildred's son, Robbie. Catherine Newton plays Mildred's dead daughter, Angela. She also happens to be in Lady Bird playing the minor role of Darlene. Also in Three Billboards is Caleb Landry Jones, who plays Red Welby. He's the guy who Mildred pays to put up the billboards. He might look familiar because he's also in Get Out, where he plays Rose's violent brother, Jeremy. Also in Get Out is Bradley Whitford. He appears in the post as the fictional character Arthur Parsons. Alright, so now we have the six of the films on the board. That just leaves Dunkirk, Darkest Hour, and Phantom Thread. An actor named Davy Jones, kind of funny, plays a soldier in both Dunkirk and Darkest Hour. And, as he says, yeah, it's a smaller role, but it's still a connection. Two other actors also have minor roles in both Dunkirk and Darkest Hour. Also in Darkest Hour is a character named Chris Harris, who plays a Downing Street KB. Let's assume that's a British official during the uh, Darkest Hour time. Chris Harris happens to also play a musician in Phantom Thread. So now we've connected these three movies together, but we're still missing a connection to the first six. This is where things get a little tricky, and luckily the person who made this article did some more research. Uh, through IMDb searching for any actor that might be the missing link, just when we thought it wasn't possible, we found her. Tracy Ruggiero. Tracy is a stunt performer who had roles in both Dunkirk and The Post. Yes, there were stunts in The Post. Uh, she goes on to say, So in The Post there was a protest scene. I was running behind the car. I knew that Meryl was in the car and she was looking out the back as Tom Hanks was walking down the street. And so I knew like I was running through a, that scene a bunch. In Dunkirk I played a nurse in the big boat scene and Actually, like stunt nurse is what she was called because I was perform a stunt performer. Literally, you felt like you were drowning. It really felt like the boat was getting bombed. It's quite an honor to just have been. Uh, it's quite an honor just to have been just to even work a day in any any of those movies. A movie that Steven Spielberg directs or Christopher Nolan directs. So there you go. All nine films connected. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon style minus Kevin Bacon. And yeah, that's really it for the Oscar news for this week. And that's really it for the poor four. So on the poor four today, I covered I covered some old news involving me from seven years ago. I covered Trump's aluminum and steel tariffs that are going on. I talked about the Oscars, and I guess I actually left off one other story I wanted to talk about, which involves President Trump, and that is actually involving that the Trump organization reportedly ordered replicas of the presidential seal for Trump's golf courses. So basically, they're just trying to really put the notoriety of Trump on all of the Trump-branded golf courses to be like, hey, the president plays golf here. Hey, just so you remember, Donald Trump is a president. He owns a bunch of real estate involving these golf courses that you should play it because the president's logo is now on it. Which is not okay. According to this article from Slate... It would likely amount to an illegal exploitation of the office of the presidency. The Trump Organization appears to have ordered replicas of the official presidential steel to be placed on Trump golf courses. The Trump Organization placed orders sometimes in the past week for new tee markers sporting the seal. Uh, doing so would not only be an ethical violation by the president's company, it could be illegal. A federal law prohibits anyone from using the seal for anything other than official government business. There was a report that a company called Eagle Sign and Design received an order to make a make dozens of the 12-inch replicas of the seal. It did not say who the client was who ordered the seals, but on review of the order for the market that lists the customer as Trump International, 
On its Facebook page, the company also reportedly posted a photo of the markers with the caption, Trump International Golf Course in an album called Presidential Steel, an album that has since been cleared. While presidents have used versions of the steel for their own personal use, uh, involving custom golf balls for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, for example, uh, private companies have not done so in the past. The law that protects the steel or any facsimile thereof to convey a false impression of sponsorship or approval by the government of the United States makes its abuse a criminal offense that can be punished by a fine of up to six months in prison. So just more fun in the drama that is the Trump White House. So I guess we'll follow up on that later. And that really ends the poor four for this week. And now brings us to everyone's favorite segment, and that is the poor retort. Now, actually, this kind of takes me back to uh, a story that Nate Phillips, the podfather himself, uh, co-host on JIC, uh, host of Voices Revival, and co-host on Foodies Watching Movies, a show that I'm also a part of, a co-host of, if you will. And that involves podcasting and white nationalism. And it really shows that there really is a podcast out there for every type of person imaginable. So it's kind of a little bit late to the story, but um, Florida School removes a teacher who hosted a white nationalist podcast. Uh, Florida School District removed a middle school teacher from her classroom after it was revealed that she had secretly hosted a white nationalist podcast, raising concerns that she may have exposed her students to such ideology. Dana Voltich, 25, remains a social studies teacher at Crystal River Middle School in Crystal River. The Citrus County School District said Sunday that it was initially contacted by HuffPost about Voltich's ties to the podcast Unapologetic, which spurred it to notify Human Resources and launch a review of um, and launch a review. The HuffPost first reported the allegations on Saturday. The teacher has been removed from the classroom, and the investigation is ongoing. The school district said in a statement declined to release more information until this probe is complete. In a statement also released Sunday by Voltich's attorney, the teacher did not deny operating the podcast, which she said she did so under the Russian name Tiana Dalchyov, very Russian, but she maintained that she employed political satire and exaggeration mainly to the end of attracting listeners and followers and generating conversation about the content discussed between myself and my guests. Voltage, however, said the statements made about her alleged white nationalist views don't, quote, have any truth to them, and that she never injected her political beliefs into her classes. The views Tiana Dolciov espouses do not pervade my professional career, she added. As an adult, my decisions are my own, and my family has nothing whatsoever to do with my social media accounts or my podcast. From them, I humbly ask for forgiveness, and it will was never my intention to cause them grief while engaging in a hobby on my personal time. Voltage could not immediately be reached for comment. The educator ran the podcast and a related Twitter account, since taken down, that expressed racially charged messages and white nationalist views. One tweet posted, said in February, It isn't supremacist or hateful to prefer your own people over others. Another tweet last fall, the account shared a picture of a workbook that mentioned confronting racism in classrooms quote said i literally feel brain cells dying as i read this expletive probably shit um nbc news didn't uh has not repeatedly independently verified huff post's uh report in a february 26th episode of the um, unapologetic podcast voltage interviewed prominent white nationalist 
Lana Lochtef, a host of Red Ice TV, which the Southern Poverty Law Center describes as a hate group. When the school's principal approached her about expressing her political views to students, Voltit said on the podcast that she lied and said the parents' concerns were unfounded. And she believed me, Voltit said with a laugh. The conversation between Lochtef and Voltage circled around numerous topics, including teaching white nationalist ideology to children, how Voltage felt constrained by her school's administration, and the need for private schools in which white nationalist views could be taught outright. Hit me up when you're ready, Voltage said. It also commented on how some races are better than others. She said, this is science, though. So many other researchers have already looked into this. That's just the way it is. There are races that have higher IQs than others. Crystal River Middle School is nearly 90% white, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. The community is about 80 miles north of Tampa. Voltage became certified to teach in Florida in July 2016. State records show. The former Pennsylvania resident graduated from the Ohio State University in 2014 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. Under her Dolce of pseudonym, she espoused her views online in recent months about school violence, politics, and the challenges of teaching. After the fatal shooting last month of 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, the Dachyov Twitter account directed a tweet to Parkland survivor David Hogg to, quote, stop acting like a toddler and that sometimes you always you don't always get what you want. Last week when a teacher fired a gun inside of a Georgia high school, renewing conversations about the dangers of having firearms on campus, Voltage uploaded a 37-minute video in which she appeared to question if the incident was a conspiracy by a, quote, lifetime liberal teacher to prevent the arming of educators. On social media, Voltage had also discussed and retweeted controversial statements about Jews and Muslims prompting the Dachyov Twitter account to be suspended in October. The idea that teachers carry implicit biases in the classroom was studied in 2016 by Yale University researchers who found that preschool teachers showed a tendency to observe black males more closely than their white counterparts, revealing how they can be judged differently. Researcher Walter Gilliam, a professor of child psychiatry and psychology at Yale, said that unrecognized biases can be dangerous, especially since children learn from behavioral cues. The kids pick it up, the kids just see our behavior, and they take note of why are you always calling out on one kid and not calling out on the other ones, Gilliam said. Young children, he added, learn from adults who's safe and who's not safe, what's okay and what's not okay. Just because a person doesn't overtly ra- doesn't say overtly racist things and it looks like they have no impact whatsoever, that's not true, that biases aren't coming across. A mother of a student in Voltage social study class told NBC News that her daughter recounted at least one troubling conversation. They were talking about segregation in a civil rights type of capacity, and this Teacher somewhat alluded that segregation might possibly be okay in her opinion, said parent Meredith Blerkley. Blerkley said that she had a discussion with her daughter to speak up if she feels the teacher is being inappropriate. This is not what the community stands for, she added. This is a small town, so it's very upsetting to find out what is going on in our school system. So this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, I understand the right to free speech and the fact that if you start saying that restricting what people can can or cannot say in podcasts... It'll be just as restrictive as radio. And I enjoy the fact that podcasts are very open and if everyone wants to do a topic on whatever they want to. Like, if I want to do a topic on candles, I can. If I want to do a topic on monuments in the U.S., I can. But that unfortunately also means that if I wanted to start a topic about white nationalism, then under free speech, I can also do that. And I think there should there's a gray area that I think... If people start restricting one person's views, it can be a domino effect to being 
leading to podcasting and networks and production co- or hosting sites like Podbean or Spotify or Apple Podcast can restrict on what you can and can't say the same reason if you put licensed video or audio on one of your shows. And I think we're on a slippery slope. So as much as I disagree with everything that podcast is about and everything that she's doing and the fact that she's spreading her views to her kids, I agree that she should be punished and taken out of school because you cannot push your own agenda to your kids. You're there to teach them the book at hand and what the book says and how them to move on and learn and be real members of society for when they get older. You shouldn't be pushing your own agenda or your own weird views, especially ones that are such condemned by everyone in the U.S., except for a very small number. But she is right that saying that what she does in her own time is no concern of her administration, but when you're harming your students, when you're talking about harming your students in a very early developmental stage, that's when it becomes a severe problem, and I definitely condemn her for that. And that's this week's The Poor Retort. Uh, we'll bring back more news and more information next week. You can check us out every Tuesday, bright and early, for your commute to work. I like to keep these shows to 30 to 45 minutes, and we're about at that 45-minute mark, which is great. I know my episodes have been a little long in the past, so it's nice to have a short one every now and then. So, check us out. We also are doing The Road to Infinity War on Patreon. So, if you go to patreon.com slash journey to comics, you can check us out there. And for $3, you get access to not only the dollar tier, which gets you early access to all our episodes, but also exclusive content, which includes reviews of all of the MCU movies and also... A lot of stuff that's on the horizon that I can't talk about yet, but it's going to involve some new shows to check out that are going to be Patreon-exclusive on topics that you've always wanted to podcast about. I also want a side note just to thank uh, two shows uh, that aren't on my network. As much as I love the foodies watching movies and how much that brings me to such a brand, there's uh, two other movie podcasts that I follow that have brought me a lot of good information leading into this Oscar race and leading into the award show season. And I happened by chance because I found this podcast called So I Married a Movie Geek, which involves uh, a man getting his wife, who's never seen any of these, any movies really, and just gives her a movie education. So every week they review uh, another movie and they've been doing these fantasy movie drafts, which have been really cool to listen to. And even after the show went on a hiatus for a few years while they had kids, it's nice to see it come back. And it was through one of those fantasy movie drafts that I had learned about another podcast, which is the Next Best Picture podcast, hosted by Matt Neglia, who him and his team do some phenomenal reviews and Oscar predictions and other award show predictions, as well as film festivals and some other great information. And both of those podcasts I keep up with on a weekly basis amongst everything else on my network that's I already listened to, so just want to give a shout out to them because they've really opened my eyes to some other ways to look at films that I haven't looked at before. So with that, that'll end the show for this week. Thank you again for listening. Have a great week. This is the Poor Rapport. I love you guys.